I remember when I was a kid and I got a fever. My mom would come over and tuck me into bed and place cold blankets on my forehead. She would say, open up, as she held my chin and fed me my favorite soup. Although I didn't realize it then, my mom was playing the role of a caregiver. At some point, we will all get sick and grow old, some of us more than others. When we can no longer get out of bed or change our clothes, who takes care of us? Friends, family, strangers, all of the above? Caregivers are those who provide care and tend to the needs of people experiencing short or long-term limitations from illness, injury, or disabilities. According to data from Statistics Canada in 2018, approximately one in four Canadians aged 15 and older, or 7.8 million people, provided care to a family member or friend with a long-term health condition. Caregiving can take on many forms, from driving family members to their doctor's appointments, assisting with activities of daily living, and providing emotional and social support, just to name a few. In this episode, we'll examine the experience of caregiving from a few different perspectives. We'll explore the role of caregivers in advocating for their care recipients, delve into the multifaceted challenges of personal support workers, and discuss the unique needs of Indigenous caregivers in Canada. We would like to acknowledge that here in Toronto, we are on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit River, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples, and we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. I'm Priska. And I'm Helen. Welcome to episode 109 of Raw Talk Podcast. Hi, I'm Taylor Boroff. I'm the spokesperson for the Ontario PSW Association. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm very excited to be here today and to have this opportunity to speak with you. So basically, PSW's personal support workers, our main domain is personal care, bedside care, um, activities of daily living. So solely what we do is work with the patient or client or resident with their physical needs, for their physical needs. And we're basically bedside all of the time. That is our entire job description. A lot of the residents in long-term care Some of them are mobile and physically able to move, and a lot of them are also bedridden, unfortunately. So a lot of the work looks like changing your residence, feeding them, trying to do activities of daily living with those who can. And then you go into home care, and it's a little bit less regimented in the sense that you are in someone's home. It's very personalized and A lot of people in home care are also bedridden, but we also have the more active clients that you could be doing actual activities of daily living. You could be going out for walks with them. You could just be hanging out in their house with them, doing light housekeeping while making sure you know that they have been bathed and they are feeding themselves or you're creating small meals for them as well. So your your scope kind of varies a little bit in both of those settings. You just heard from Taylor, the English media spokesperson for the Ontario Personal Support Worker Association, who has had years of experience as a personal support worker involved in community care, home care, and retirement and long-term care. 
She has also been working in the ICU at an Ontario hospital to provide care to COVID-19 patients through the pandemic. The nature of care varies widely in different settings. While a great portion of care happens by the bedside, personal support workers also provide more holistic lifestyle support. Next, we asked Taylor what lifestyle care looks like. I felt personally when I worked in long-term care in hospital, there were more policies set out in terms of feeding. You had people come and bring food to the patient or the resident or activities. There was a lot of recreational staff of some sort that would be there to solely just entertain and try and stimulate the, the resident or the patient. And then when you go into their home, it's, it's just you and you kind of have to wear multiple hats of, okay, I'm going to go and prepare their meal for them. Oh, I need to make sure that they're bathing. I need to check in and make sure that they've in some settings taken their meds properly. I need to do a bit of light housekeeping because things are a little bit dusty or whatever, whatever is in your scope at that time, because you're also there to support the patient, but you're, you're supporting them in their home. So there's other things that start to come into play and you don't have staff that are there just solely for each um, individual need. You are the staff for all those needs. I found that uh, institutionalized care, there was a higher volume. So you had a higher patient ratio. So for, for me in long-term care and in hospital settings, it's a lot of repeating the same activity or similar activity, but you're doing it at a quick pace. And in home care, you have maybe a couple of hours or an hour allotted to a client. So is it a challenge in the sense that yes, you're in someone's home and you, you're wearing different hats for different types of care? Yes. But then you're going into the institutions and you're working at a fast, repetitive rate constantly. Um, so I would say that there's difficulties in both settings. It's just different. What would you say are some of the, the major sort of mental health challenges in particular that are faced by PSW, uh, as well as maybe touching a little bit on some of the physical challenges of the work and how these things might, uh, might sort of contribute to the, the mental health issues and burnout and so on? So the workers compensating for that gap in our staffing ratios by overperforming, essentially. I also think a lot of the mental health challenges that we're facing right now, a lot of it is pandemic related, but also I think it's been years of lack of respect and under recognition. And now you're throwing in a pandemic and now we're being forced to handle all those challenges as well but we love our field so much. And then you're watching your residents, unfortunately, pass away. And you're watching people pass away at incredibly high rates. And it's sad and it's heavy and it takes a toll on your mind after a while. So you have all of this, these multitude of problems coming into play now, what feels like all at once. And people need to take a step back to kind of gather themselves because when you're not feeling good physically anymore, you're not feeling good mentally anymore. What are you doing? You know what I mean? How are you going to move forward? Could you maybe outline a little bit more some of these specific issues and, and some of the, the ways that we as Ontarians, as Canadians, that we can support PSWs, that we can help to fill those gaps or push politicians, what have you, to fill those gaps because obviously this is a, a centrally important aspect of, of care. 
Yes, um, I think what we could do collectively as a group, we could start really paying attention to the small things that are happening right now. And they're small to us, but they're very large to a PSW. So for example, in home care right now, we are seeing PSWs leaving home care or just finding it not feasible anymore because costs of living aren't being accounted for in their travel expenses. So now PSWs are paying, and I'm sure in a lot of professions, a lot of people are feeling this, this strain as well, but PSWs are paying a ton of money in, in gas and in resources and in wear and tear on their cars to go to clientele that the, their agencies aren't really compensating them for. And that is another kind of nail in the coffin, so to speak, as to why people are leaving. We also have a lack of education right now. And I do know that we did create some hybrid programs to try and fill the need for staff. But what we're seeing now is a large amount of people just leaving the field immediately after they get out of school because they're feeling underprepared and overwhelmed. Um, we need to start kind of addressing that this isn't something that you learn very quickly and you need a lot of support because you're, you're being thrown into burning buildings. Despite PSWs playing an increasingly integral role in providing health care, they face many institutional challenges which the pandemic has exacerbated. We asked how the greater public could support PSWs to help fill in these gaps of care. I think as well, what we could be doing is really emphasizing the respect and recognition part. We are slowly, we're getting our way closer to becoming um, regulated, but that was something in the works for years, for years. And that was one of the major things that OBSO was advocating for. And it is going into motion, which is great, but it needs to happen quicker because as the public is now realizing, the PSW job is super important. and we need to be held accountable to the public. We are working with vulnerable people. And if we're not showing up or if there aren't enough of us, systems crumble. So to kind of take my long speech and try and make it a little bit shorter, I would say that we need to start putting resources, our money into resources that are actually going to carry us through to the end and really play the long game here. I also think too, um, I am someone that works frontline and in the entirety of the pandemic. And I feel that we need to start listening to those of us on the ground because we're on the ground. We know the core issues. And sometimes I feel like that gets lost in, tra in translation with people 30,000 feet up looking down, trying to help us. So I would say putting our resources into proper education, um, recognizing the importance of the role and really starting to listen to those PSWs and healthcare workers on the ground that are essentially screaming for help and actually addressing the issues. And if I can be so bold here, no more conversations about how we need to change things, just making the change happen. You know what I mean? Like it, it needs to happen and in, we're in a red state still and it's a crisis. The government basically offered to fund PSWs to go to school and pay for their education. We started kind of accelerating the time needed to become a PSW, and essentially we are creating PSWs quicker. I guess that's the idea, is to kind of get us through school as quick as possible and get us out into the field and get us out helping the situation. It's a great thought, and it was necessary, but I think it is very hard to kind of 
snap your fingers and make something like this happen and then expect that we're going to have a great result because we're in a state of emergency and it is very hard for people to kind of fly through school and then run into, as I said before, these burning buildings and just start applying everything all at once. And things are getting lost. There's some things you just can't learn online and you need to be practicing your skills. And you can't just kind of graduate school and walk into the job and, and think that it's all going to come together because these students are prepared in the classroom or online one of the main things I've heard from students is that they just feel alone in the workplace and they feel like they're kind of on an island, which honestly, they kind of are. You were thrown into school really quickly. Boom, boom, boom. This is what you're going to learn. Great. Now go out into the field, do it all on your own. And there might not be people out there to help you because we're all kind of drowning in our own work. The policy changes that we've advocated for in the past, the main one was regulation and title protection, which it was great. Now it's happening. We just don't know when. And these things can take a long time, unfortunately. PSWs are unregulated healthcare professionals, and we have been this full time. So our major fight here was to regulate the PSW because, as it has been said multiple times during the entirety of this pandemic, we are an integral part of the healthcare system. So if we are, we need to kind of have that respective recognition that having a governing body and title protection would hold. So our main fight here was to kind of put us on the same level as the other members of our healthcare team and say, well, we need to be held accountable to the public as well. And doing that, as I said, creates that respect and that recognition that we are, we are kind of seeking and demanding for our role. Lack of workplace support, limited resources, and inadequate training are some of the difficulties experienced by PSWs. This is where public awareness and education may support their work. We asked what it was like to navigate these difficult situations. I think when you're coming in, you're going to see things that you don't like. And that is also because of the systems in place and how things are just falling apart. And when you're new or even when you're walking into your new workplace or your workplace in general, you will see things that you're kind of already questioning in your mind. And I think the best thing you can do is trying to try to report them. But these are also things that play into our systems too. I mean, lack of staff is having horrible effects on our patients and our residents and their quality of care. And it is below standard in some instances. And I know from myself, being in some of the hardest hit homes of Ontario for the past two years, that definitely plays with, um, plays with your, your mind a little bit as well as a PSW. You're watching the standard just drop and it makes you, it just, it feels so heavy to watch and, and ultimately be a part of. I mean, when I was in these homes, it was so understaffed and, and honestly, just poor working conditions in general. And a lot of people were dying. And I don't think that you walk out the door and you're like, Whoa, this was, this was fine. Like, I'm fine. I'm going to go home now and like have a cup of tea and just hang out. Like you, you carry it out with you. And unfortunately it's just the system now. And there's only so much you can do as well. But for me, advocating was a big one. And, and being able to do it on, on a great platform was great, but 
you're seeing you're just yeah you're just seeing so many failures and it also weighs on your mind as well as the worker who is just put into these systems and is just trying to make things work as well but you just know that the standard of care is just dropping it's just such a heavy feeling for people and that's also why people are just leaving the field um as people have said before like we actually did not sign up for this we didn't sign up for I know I personally did not sign up for watching people die at such a rapid rate. Um, it is horrible. And it is horrible because, you know, you're in there for the right reasons, trying to help all of these people and all these things are happening around you and you can't, you can't fix it. You know what I mean? You're, you are the little man in the grand scheme of things. As like a final thought, our work is so important and it has been so evident that is it is an integral part of our system that it would almost be a disservice to everyone because everybody at some point might need some sort of care in their life. It would almost be a disservice to them to turn a blind eye to this. And as I was saying before, a lot of us are seeing very, very sad situations, very dark system failures. And it is heavy for the healthcare worker in general to carry. And I feel that we need to really start taking, not, not taking it seriously, but really start to address these things properly and stop talking about how we're going to address these things properly. It is, it is heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking that two years into this, we are still seeing so many of the same failures that we saw the first wave even or even years ago as a PSW, we are still encountering the same struggles that you encountered years ago. I think that now the pandemic has kind of shone a light at what happens when you have this system failure and what happens when we don't have PSWs or when we do not have, you know, healthcare workers, things just start crumbling. As we just learned, personal support workers can provide care in a professional capacity. However, the caregiving role can often be taken on by close family or friends as well. Ron Baleno, caregiver, advocate, and the chair of AgeWell, shares his personal experience as a family caregiver. Hi, everyone. I'm Ron Baleno, and I was a caregiver to my father, Ray, uh, who lived with Alzheimer's and dementia for over 10 years, diagnosed back in 2007 and uh, peacefully passed away at home in 2018. I myself had become quite a strong advocate uh, in the caregiving space, and uh, that started for me back in 2015. I do a lot of work with many associations and organizations uh, with Alzheimer's and dementia societies. Uh, one organization that I'm quite involved with, uh, uh, from the many that I participate with, uh, is AgeWell, which is Canada's technology and aging network where I co-chair the Older Adult and Caregiver Advisory Committee. And uh, another uh, group that I'm with is the Center for Aging and Brain Health Innovation, known as CABI. Uh, and uh, they do a lot of work with regards to innovation as well and scaling them up. One last uh, you know, community that I really am a big supporter of, not just the healthcare space, but uh, the research space. Uh, with a lot of researchers, whether that is, you know, students as well, uh, all the way up to uh, researchers internationally that's doing work around caregiving uh, and, um, and dementia specifically.
how would you define caregivers and what do you think the term means to you? For me, caregiving or being a caregiver, it's actually really two words in my opinion. It's really care and give. Uh, that's how I've broken it down simply. Uh, and it's not simply just a label. You know, it is a label, but it is actually more for me an action, some form of action that is happening. Uh, to be a caregiver, uh, you have to give care to someone else. Um, and the key word here is care. Uh, my example would have been my father. But also I talk about that I was also caregiving for the caregiver, another caregiver, which was mom. I'm going to use the word caregiver today, but some of you, you know, will prefer a different term. So one that's growing is care partner. Okay. So care partners is a growing term uh, or phrase. Uh, you go outside of North America, uh, Europe and uh, Australia, they would be using carers. Okay. So they are carers. Uh, I smile sometimes, uh, we don't use it in Canada a lot, but sometimes in the US, they use the term caretaker. So you're, I'm the caretaker to my dad, okay? But I smile and I say, oh, so one is a caregiver and then there's the caretaker. So give and take technically are kind of opposite, but they're the same in this kind of definition, right? So uh, it, it is one there, but then I kind of throw out that there could be also that other piece where many don't even know that they're a caregiver, okay? They're simply the son. Uh, the, the daughter, the uh, could be the husband, wife, spouse, you know, label that you can say, oh, no, that's just my role as the, the husband, right? Uh, there is that cultural piece when it comes to uh, labels and words. So depending on your culture, you might not even know what caregiver means. But in the end, I kind of come back to, so what's the action that you're doing? What are you offering? Are you offering your time? Are you uh, actually maybe driving someone to their appointments? bringing them food. Uh, that's more what is the conversation that it should be versus the label. But everyone's allowed to choose. But I also tell people it's kind of tricky that, again, this trend, for example, the big one to care partner there, Helen, that's happening right now, uh, is that a lot of those are coming from my experience the past five years from the voices where the partner who's being cared for, the care recipient says, no, this is an equal relationship. There's still, you know, you know, there's that power dynamic in these labels, but there are some, some that are out there that, okay, no, they kind of struggle with that because they're actually giving care. Without them, that person that they're caring for, the care recipient, really can't, will not get through the day, okay? There's also some that are the grandkids or the, the sons or daughters. They've never had a partnership relationship with their parent or grandparent. So they're saying, why am I be, being called a care partner now, right? So again, it's, Dependent on everybody. Caregiving can look different in various communities. Dr. Danielle Alcock, who completed her doctorate degree in social cultural anthropology at Western University, has extensive experience as a senior's health advocate and patient navigator for Indigenous communities. She shares with us the unique experiences of Indigenous caregivers, starting with how this motivated her to pursue her PhD work. Hello, my name is Danielle, and uh, I am Anishinaabekwe and mixed ancestry because my mom is a settler Canadian, and I belong to the Chippewas of Rama First Nation. For myself, I currently work at a Indigenous health organization in southwestern Ontario, and so I've been uh, supporting a research project um, going into the second year of doing that, focused on cultural safety. 
So you published a thesis um, titled, I Honored Him Until the End, and it was kind of focused on storytelling of Indigenous female caregivers and providers supporting uh, those living with Alzheimer's and other dementias. And I really enjoyed reading that. Um, and then in your kind of in your intro, you mentioned that um, you were a caregiver yourself. So could you speak about what motivated you to pursue this kind of work? Yeah, I think um, for myself, it was because I was a caregiver. Um, so I actually focused my master's um, on that journey, as well as continuation within my PhD, um, because of that recognition that there's not a lot of culturally specific or culturally safe supports available for Indigenous caregivers. And so that was something that I recognized was pretty much minimal or non-existent. Um, so it was something that I recognized that I should talk about, um, that there's probably other people in similar positions as myself with similar uh, experiences as caregivers and kind of addressing like, what are those larger systemic barriers that exist where there aren't many things that you can access and why do they exist in the first place? Um, so that's how I wanted to approach it, not in terms of kind of looking at what's the context, like what are the issues, what are the barriers and what could we kind of do to make it a little bit better? I also listened to a talk that you kind of gave at, um an organization. And um, I think you mentioned that about like dementia, maybe about 30% or higher in Indigenous communities compared to the general population, and that these rates are um, basically rising. Um, but there is very limited information about how to support Indigenous caregivers um, uh, who are caring for people uh, who have Alzheimer's and dementia. So um, can you speak about some of the gaps that exist in this area, kind of like knowledge gaps that exist? Yeah, I think um, the fortunate thing within the last probably 10 years is that there's been an increase of research that's being done by Indigenous researchers within Indigenous communities um, to really ground it in Indigenous approaches and ways of knowing. So that's been a really good shift. But there is still a really big gap um, especially with um, Alzheimer's disease and dementia, there is stigma that's attached to it. And that's across the board for everyone. And then I think that it could be more complicated. Um, like for myself, um, my dad was diagnosed with alcohol-related dementia. So it was a double stigma of being dementia that was onset because of substance use. And so with that is you really face a lot of those the, it's essentially discrimination and even racism within interactions with healthcare providers. And so it's really that fear of experiencing racism or discrimination or actually experience it. I think that's still a really big barrier for people wanting to, to get supports. Um, there's still a big knowledge gap of what is dementia? What does it look like? How to know what is healthy aging? What are some of the signs and symptoms? And so that's a big barrier as well within all communities of knowing like, what does this look like? Um, when should you actually seek some, some support from a family physician or a specialist in this case? And I think a really big gap too is that with in Indigenous communities is that um, there's a higher life expectancy now. And so that's a factor as well is that we have a larger population of people who are aging. And so that's directly related to Alzheimer's disease and dementia, that the older you get, the higher the chance that you could develop this. But it also goes in hand in hand of external comorbidities that might be related 
um, such as uh, diabetes as a factor as well. So there's, it's super complex and <laughs> there's so many aspects that go with it as well. And I think too, that um, with, in terms of caregivers is that because there's not a lot of knowledge that currently exists, you just do the work. So you're just doing the best you can with what you have available, support from friends and family. If you have resources in your community that you can access, then you are able to manage better. But I think the biggest gap as well is um, it's a lot of the, the access to services. So a lot of communities don't have services available, whether that's PSW support, even having long-term care availability in your community, access to RNs, respite care, so if you don't have those resources, then it just makes it harder for caregivers because you don't have that additional support that can be really beneficial. Because um, I found for myself, and I, I know with a lot of caregivers that your health is really, it's absolutely paramount to that of the person that you're caring for, because if you're not healthy and that's gonna impact them. So it's just ensuring that people have those supports. But unfortunately, there's a lot of gaps um, within those jurisdictional barriers that are made up um, based on where you live. And so based on where you live really determines uh, what supports that you might have. So some caregivers that I spoke to had a lot of great supports in their community. Um, and so they were able to manage really well, but others that didn't have those supports or their loved ones had to relocate to access uh, hospital care or even long-term care, then that created a really big hardship emotionally, you know, physically, mentally, and spiritually for them of trying to care for their loved ones from a distance. As just discussed, the well-being of caregivers play an important role to sustainable care, but caregivers in traditionally marginalized communities experience additional challenges. We asked Dr. Alcock about the unique difficulties experienced by Indigenous caregivers. I think it's the, the lack of resources that are available. Um, especially if you are Métis, you are not recognized under the Indian Act to receive the same um, services that are part of treaty rights and part of that relationship of reciprocity that's supposed to be in place um, between First Nations and sovereign nations with the uh, federal and provincial government. So if you are Métis, you have to access mainstream services because there aren't many options that are actually available for you if you are Métis. They are predominantly geared to if you're First Nations or if you're Inuit. And so I found that to be a really big um, barrier that it just doesn't exist. And then as well of just, just the, the one thing I think that always stands out for me, and I usually will kind of bring it up, is the non-insured health benefits. Um, so that is benefits that are focused on um, health, vision, assisted devices for those who are First Nations or Inuit. And within there, they do sometimes cover the cost of travel if needed to get to medical appointments or specialist appointments at hospitals or other locations. But within that document, it specifically says that it's not applicable to compassionate reasons. So that would be for caregivers who might have to travel from where they reside to visit a loved one who's been relocated to a long-term care home because they weren't able to remain in community with the supports that they would need to be able to stay at home as long as possible. So that's something where there's these policies that are in place that are creating a lot of these barriers that currently exist, or there's not the same funding that is available within Indigenous communities to have those supports to keep people at home as long as they possibly want to be um, surrounded by family, by their culture, their connection, 
um, the importance of place because it's place and space. It's not just a geographic location, but that's where your, your memories are. That's where home is. That's where your ancestors are buried. So really that, that connection is something that's also not recognized of, it's not just keeping people in a physical space, but it's that connection to so many aspects of their self that if you have to relocate to long-term care, that that has a long-lasting impact. As mentioned, the current policies in place make it challenging for caregivers in Indigenous communities to provide appropriate care that is culturally safe. Next, we asked Danielle what culturally safe care is and how this practice can be applied to the role of caregiving. So I work in culturally safe care. <laughs> um, so I, I still uh, do that, which is something I'm, I'm really passionate about and something that um, I'm really honored to, to work with. Uh, and working within an Indigenous organization um, has been really fantastic to be able to have that opportunity. And so it's uh, working within the hospital context of how do we improve uh, culturally safe care, but working with those who have the decision-making powers. So those who are in leadership roles or management roles. So it's providing education, training, tools, and looking at sustainability of culturally safe care within hospitals. Um, so yeah, I've continued this work and especially my uh, applications of within the context of dementia and memory loss, I think has been supportive because I see that that's still a gap. Um, there's still a lot of learning that needs to be done, I think within all populations about memory loss, but especially within indigenous communities that if we have the fastest growing aging population, this is something that's going to be increasing. And so it's something that needs to be um, addressed really for how do you provide culturally safe care as those numbers are rising. And I think culturally safe care is something that is it's important for in all contexts, but especially in for those who are caregivers for um, a loved one with Alzheimer's disease or dementia to ensure that looking at I guess approaching it as a family. It's not just an individual who's being affected by this. Um, and it's not just a biological or it's not just a mental impact, but looking at the holistic impacts as well. And so I think ensuring that people have the opportunity to really be treated holistically is really key. And the opportunity to have access to cultural supports that are going to benefit their well-being and they determine it. I think that's a really big piece as well is cultural safety is always defined by those receiving care, not by those that are giving it. And so that's the important piece of, of people being able to decide that this is what works for me, this is what I need. And then it's working with healthcare providers or you know practitioners, allied health um, professionals and working in like a co-partnership of what that actually looks like. So I think in that's kind of the, the foundation because within Indigenous health. And I know there's so many articles and examples that cultural, culturally safe care isn't something that has been practiced. Um, it's constantly brought to our attention, unfortunately, through cases like uh, Joyce Eshkwen, um, just last in 2020, that that was an example of uh, racism and discrimination for someone and the importance of um, really addressing those power dynamics that exist for, uh, with healthcare providers when you are supporting Indigenous people, Indigenous families, and that the onus needs to be really turned around for those providing the care of how are you perpetuating an unsafe dynamic 
and that they are the ones who have to really figure out how to be reflexive, how to work well, how to change um, the way that they might operate or actually address those stereotypes and racism and biases that they might carry. I'm excited to unpack all of that, the, the challenging and also the joyful parts of your experience. Before we kind of dive deeper into that, I'd li- like to kind of now address the second piece of our conversation today, which was the dementia piece, uh, mm. as we were talking about caregiving in a more broader sense. But what are some terms and words that you've heard people associate with dementia specifically? Yeah, so uh, the first time um, that I heard about, you know, I knew about dementia before my dad's diagnosis, but I really, you know, it's one of those, if you don't experience it, you really don't get it. Okay. You just hear the word dementia. But again, when my dad got diagnosed back in 2007, I remember, you know, the, you know, the doctor saying, Ron, I I really believe your dad has a dementia, you know, and uh, possibly Alzheimer's. And he was actually at the hospital for something else. Uh, We had a little bit of an emergency and it was one where, now, my dad, uh, you know, eventually we got, he got diagnosed and it was confirmed he had dementia and he was still, you know, you know, quite aware at that point of what was going on. And he says, oh, okay. And that's how he responded. And I kind of just like looked at it. And I said, okay. And for our family, it's maybe not common with many stories that I hear from other families in the dementia space that they get their diagnosis. Uh, but for us, it, it's always comes back to getting to that label, you know, and the meaning you attach to it. So dementia to me was just a label and it scares a lot of people. Okay? There's this, this, I think a stigma that, it, you know, and, and to me, life isn't over, but, you know, it's, it's right away for me. It was just, okay, dad, let's have that conversation with mom, dad, you got this. Okay. And he says, okay, sure. Whatever. Uh, let's just keep going. And I said, okay, well, my goal is as your son, I'll just make sure you get what you want as best as you can. Okay. Whatever you want in life, let's, move forward with it. And I didn't really honestly care about the word dementia. I just said, what's it going to bring us? And then how do we overcome those challenges or barriers? That's very interesting to me, because I feel like, especially from popular literature, from movie references, it's often the case that I think the Alzheimer's experience or dementia experience is associated with very emotional turbulence, especially at the diagnosis stage. It's interesting to me that you and your family had a very, okay, like, this is, this is something that, this is a news that we received. How can we deal with this? Like you kind of mentioned earlier too, with the de- definition of caregivers, it was very action focused. Do you think there was a reason behind that reaction? So for, for my perspective growing up when, you know, I, I think I've been blessed and fortunate in some way where it's not about simply being positive versus being negative. Okay. It's not just that, but on the basic surface, most people will say, oh, Ron's a positive guy. Um, Yeah, but I try to avoid positive and negative. Actually, I'm not the biggest fan of making it quite binary or, you know, one or the other, right or wrong, good or bad. It's actually for me, it's it's really about, you know, just taking on life's challenges. So I've already accepted at a very young age. So I had that opportunity to mentally work that. And that is the biggest thing I will always try and want to bring to the community is that we don't talk about the mental exercises, the mental strategies, okay, to strengthen someone in this role of caregiving. But usually with caregiving, there's all these challenges. Uh, You know, with my mom, uh, love her to death, you know, it is, uh, you know, but my mom has a unique way that she sometimes just doesn't want the information. 
Okay, it could be a cultural thing, which is fine. But then when those moments come, okay, and you're not prepared as best as you could be, uh, then it, it becomes stressful in that period of time. Okay, uh, and that's why I believe, okay, you got to do a lot of work. We've got to put a lot of focus, you know, in supporting caregivers uh, in many ways, physically, emotionally, but also we could train them to get just a little bit stronger, to be a little bit more prepared. Some of the resources and some of the supports and some of the narratives that's out there, okay, focus on a specific type of culture that, you know, and again, this is what this culture goes with, and it conflicts with other cultures sometimes, right? And it's just one of those where that's where the caregiver will have some challenges, but even also the person who is being cared for, the care recipient or our loved one. So like with my dad, okay, I, you know, supported the lead that he took. He says, oh, okay, you know, that's how he responded. Okay, honestly, this whole time, the whole time that he had it, he just knew he was going for doctor's appointments, but he really didn't even bring up the word dementia ever, okay? Uh, and it had to be me that had to bring it up, but there is a reason why you also bring it up because when you have a label, when you're diagnosed with something, you can then get support systems as well. You know, you know, like, so there is a reason why labels do work at a larger scale that, you know, um, I could go to the Alzheimer's Society if my dad wasn't diagnosed with, even though they serve other people, you don't have to be diagnosed. But, but more the point on that is that, that for my dad, um, again, if he lived in the Philippines, chances are, even if they said that to him, he was just gonna continue his life. Uh, and whatever came, to him, uh, he tried to figure it out, but I kind of knew that he wouldn't be able to get as far along uh, in his life, you know, without supports. Okay, and honestly, I've shared this quietly, but I'm sharing it again fully uh, here that when he was diagnosed, one of the doctors uh, at the hospital says, "You know, by the way, Ron, I give your dad two years." And I, I looked at him. And I said, two years of what?" And again, I was ignorant back then. He says, I've seen, you know, someone like your dad before and just how bad he was at that point. You know, he says, I'd be shocked if he makes it to three years. Okay. And I said, oh, I didn't realize you could diagnose someone with dementia, you know, with a time frame like that. He's, I, so I just trusted him. Uh, many, I think, don't like that that doctor did that to me or said that to me. But, and I kind of look back and I say, actually, I took that on in a different way. I said, well, thank you, doctor. Because I said, my goal was hey, dad, you know what? I'm not going to tell you this, but my goal is to try and get you to three to four years, maybe even five years if we're lucky, based on what this, this doctor told me, okay? Well, we, we made it to 10 years, okay? And it is one of those where uh, it was just about looking forward, moving forward. We spoke a lot about the many challenges of being a caregiver in this episode. There is definitely more we can do to support them. However, the caregiving experience can be a meaningful one. Danielle tells us more about this. I think one thing as well is that within the context of memory loss within Indigenous communities, and I think kind of across the spectrum, um, someone I actually spoke to um, who works within the field of memory loss actually said that when you meet one person with dementia, you've met one person with dementia. And that's something I really like because it's also the, the context of an indiv individual lived experience. And so if you're meeting someone, um, there might be some similarities that might exist because of the systemic barriers that are created that can impact experience, but also that recognition that each Indigenous person is going to be 
their own individual themselves with their own lived experience, their own history. And so that's really important for healthcare providers to be aware of, of getting to know somebody, finding out what's important to them, what's important to their family, and finding out how you can really support that by removing some of those barriers, getting really creative with ways to uh, support families. So I think that's something that I always try to tell people of you've met one person um, and really look at it in that context of each person is going to be individual. And I think with caregiving too, we often talk about um, some of the, you know, it's a difficult role, um, but it's also really rewarding. And so that's something that really came across and speaking with these incredible Indigenous female caregivers is the, the rewards that they received. Um, and that was the opportunity to care for a parent who um, they always saw as like, they cared for me. It's now my opportunity to return that as they're returning back to the spirit world and the opportunity to recognize your own strength, your own ability to develop your voice and to be an advocate so I think that's a piece as well of that it, there needs to have the balance of the difficulty of the role, but what are some of the, the rewards or what are some of the strength aspects to it? Because you need both for that balance. So that's something I hope that, um, you know, health healthcare providers and anyone really looking at memory loss or working with caregivers is what's the balance between the two? How do you remove those systemic barriers that are there because of policies, because of these jurisdictional barriers that are created depending on where you live and how can you remove them and then how can you also support those really positive aspects that might be there for a caregiver so that that can be nourished and continued for them. Finally, Ron speaks on the important role caregivers play in our society and shares some words of encouragement for those in this role. The caregiving is a life of taking on some of our failures, the challenges challenges that we're going to succeed with uh, and get through. And some of them are going to be small failures. Some of them are going to be big. Some of them, I hope that we could reduce them. You know, even if you fail, you can still continue moving forward and pick yourself up or, okay. But it, it's not new. And that advocacy piece is one of those where I say, okay, it's not just Ron. Okay. I get more excited when I see someone like yourself, some, you know, the other dozens, hundreds of, you know, whether you're a young caregiver, uh, an older caregiver, you know, like a very old caregiver, it doesn't really matter that, you know, there are others that could really, really appreciate that voice that you share, okay, or that listening ear, okay, that, hey, I get exactly what you've went through. And that ability to give that as a gift to other people, that's what I'm telling you now, everyone listening here, that even those who are caregivers now that don't see this as a gift, okay, you might be in the middle of it, but one little piece of advice or little suggestion or acknowledgement to another caregiver goes a long way, okay, can make the difference on their path, you know, and how they handle their life with caregiving. And so I do challenge everybody out there that has some kind of role or experience as a caregiver to maybe be willing, if you're comfortable, to show some vulnerability, you know, that's one way of saying it, but also just maybe sharing your story. Maybe we don't have to use that word vulnerability, just saying, hey, this is exactly what I went through, you know, and someone will figure out the lessons from, you know, your stories that you might not even realize you're, you're sharing a lesson. It's, it's out there. We just need to kind of remind people and encourage people that, hey, we'll even support you if you need that voice and that platform to share a little bit more. So uh, it takes caregivers kind of when you say, 
to each other, hey, I'm a caregiver. You get it right away. I could be in a room and okay, then you 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 bond right away. You know, there's empathy, compassion for each other. Okay, there's there's usually you know love for each other and, and understanding. Um, so it's it's yeah, and everyone will have an experience with a caregiver in their life, no matter what. Okay, whether you are the person caregiving or you will need care. Okay, or you know someone who's caregiving, it's gonna we're gonna need a lot more understanding in this space around care. We learned a lot about the challenges and unique experiences of caregivers in a variety of settings today. As always, a special thank you to our guests on the episode, Ron, Danielle, and Taylor. And of course, thank you for listening. This episode was hosted by Helen, myself, and Priska. Priska and Janine helped develop content. Nora, Helen, and Frank conducted interviews. Alex was the audio engineer, and Nora was the executive producer. Until next time. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars.